President George W. Bush never intended to be a foreign policy president. A former Texas governor, he was committed to issues such as educational reform and immigration reform to make his mark. The 9-11 attacks transformed the Bush presidency and transformed the United States. For the first time in almost two centuries, the continental United States had come under attack. Bush's response was to uproot the sources of extremism that motivated the 9-11 hijackers by transforming the Middle East, relying heavily on military power. His logic was clear. In an address to the nation in September 2003, he said, For a generation leading up to September the 11th, 2001, terrorists and their radical allies attacked innocent people in the Middle East and beyond without facing a sustained and serious response. The terrorists became convinced that free nations were decadent and weak, and they grew bolder, believing that history was on their side. Since America put out the fires of September the 11th and mourned our dead and went to war, history has taken a different turn. We have carried the fight to the enemy. We are rolling back the terrorist threat to civilization, not on the fringes of its influence, but at the heart of its power. That fight against terrorism embedded the United States ever more deeply in the Middle East, which had been thrust to the center of American strategic thinking. Although Bush surrogates had been skeptical during the presidential campaign of both nation-building and using the military for operations other than war, 9-11 turned that thinking on its head. Bush saw reforming repressive societies as necessary for U.S. national security. In Iraq, we are helping the long-suffering people of that country to build a decent and democratic society at the center of the Middle East. Together, we are transforming, transforming a place of torture chambers and mass graves into a nation of laws and free institutions. This undertaking is difficult and costly, yet worthy of our country and critical to our security. But in the two decades since, U.S. policymakers have come to a different conclusion. Few think that the Bush strategy was the right one. Even fewer think it was successful. Generally, I would say, especially over the past two decades, with the focus on the global war on terror and our quite militaristic approach to the region, I think that we have probably caused more harm than good. I think the obvious lesson is that if you're going to overthrow a leader in the region, you better have a plan on what to do after. And we did not have that plan. Military intervention is not the way to bring about positive change in this region. It's going to bring about more uncertainty and spillover and ramifications that were not even considered at the initial undertaking. That's Dahlia Dasake. She's a fellow at UCLA's Burkle Center for International Relations and led the Rand Corporation's Center for Middle East Public Policy from 2012 to 2020. And that's not the only lesson policymakers have drawn. 
And I think that they understand that most of the things that we've tried to do in that part of the world haven't worked very well over the last 25 years or so. They don't have the political capital to spend for a big Mideast peace push. The conditions on the ground aren't appealing. They don't have partners anywhere to really back that. So why beat your head against the wall? That's Stephen Wall. He's the Robert and Renee Belford Professor of International Affairs at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. They understand they're not going to transform the region into a sea of democracies the way that George Bush may have hoped to do. They're not going to get regime change in Iran the way that Mike Pompeo seemed to think he could. Martin Indyk is a distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was President Clinton's senior Middle East staffer on the National Security Council and served as U.S. Ambassador to Israel from 1995 to 97, and again from 2000 to 2001. In between, he served as Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. He says that a more modest U.S. approach to the Middle East is overdue. I think that because of our vast power, because American presidents necessarily feel the responsibility to be the leaders of the free world and feel some sense of divine providence that we can go out and remake the world in our own image, that we are prone to overreach. And it's overreaching in the Middle East that has been our undoing. For many years, our ambitions got way ahead of our ability to achieve them. That was particularly so in the case of the regime change policies we pursued, particularly in Iraq, Afghanistan, and with Iran. We really need to downsize our ambitions, especially because we have more pressing priorities in Asia and in Europe. And the means which were always somewhat limited and much more limited today, the means that we have to bring to bear to try to achieve our objectives. But some argue that the Middle East remains intimately connected to our other priorities and a more modest approach to the region creates an opening for U.S. adversaries. Michael Duran shares that view. He's now a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. During the George W. Bush administration, he was senior director for the Middle East on the National Security Council, a deputy assistant secretary of defense, and a senior advisor in the State Department. He says that even as the United States looks toward competition with China, it can't afford to turn away from the Middle East. I think the Chinese are using the Iranians and the Russians as stalking horses. And our policy of drawing back from the hard power game in the Middle East is having the effect of driving our allies to China. While Duran isn't seeking to resurrect a Middle East-centric U.S. foreign policy, he thinks the United States still has to focus on the region. I think what we want is a balance of power. And I think that we don't have to take on maximalist agendas and goals of entirely remaking the Middle East when we think in terms of a balance of power. What should the U.S. posture in the Middle East look like going forward? While there's a broad consensus that the last two decades produced few successes, there's less agreement on exactly what the United States should do to produce more successes, or even if success is the right metric for U.S. efforts. How should the United States engage with partners in the Middle East? And how should it engage with adversaries? And how does the Middle East fit into U.S. global strategy, especially one with an increased focus on Asia?
Welcome to the U.S. and the Middle East podcast mini-series. In this series, we talk to leading experts and former policymakers about the role of U.S. power and influence in the Middle East. I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we conclude the series by thinking about the role that the Middle East should play in U.S. global strategy. For decades, the United States has invested blood and treasure supporting allies and partners in the Middle East. It gave tens of billions of dollars in grants and loans, sold hundreds of billions of dollars worth of military equipment, and established a string of military bases from North Africa through the Gulf. Hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops deployed to reverse Saddam Hussein's 1990 invasion of Kuwait, and hundreds of thousands more deployed after 9-11 to push Saddam Hussein from power. Even without a war, tens of thousands of U.S. troops continue to patrol the region. But for years now, U.S. partners in the region have complained that the United States isn't doing enough in the Middle East, or it's doing the wrong thing. Gulf partners in Israel complain that U.S. efforts to engage Iran diplomatically embolden Tehran and provide Iran the resources to further destabilize the region. They complain that muted U.S. responses to strikes by Iran and its proxies leave them feeling exposed. Capitals across the Middle East watched the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and wondered what it meant for the United States' commitment to their security. Those events, combined with China's rise as the United States' principal national security priority, have left governments in the Middle East feeling vulnerable. And as the perception of a U.S. regional withdrawal grows, they're making new calculations in their relationships with the United States. Martin Indyk says that despite efforts to reassure U.S. partners in the Middle East, there's not much the U.S. can do to change that calculus. I think we can argue till we're blue in the face that we're really not leaving and it's not going to make any difference. The reaction to the perception of America's withdrawal from the region and the perception of a vacuum that's been created, for the most part, it's led to our allies and partners in the region turning around to us and saying, please don't go. And it's a psychological thing where they think they can take us for granted and that we'll always be there to protect them in the extreme circumstances. They feel free to go off and misbehave in all sorts of ways that are deleterious to our interests. Stephen Walt says the U.S. partner's recent posturing is all part of a larger pattern of their taking U.S. support for granted. American policy in the Middle East for many years was based on more or less unconditional support for Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, maybe Jordan. I think we're seeing the limits of that policy. You don't get unconditional support back that these countries you know, pursue their interests as you'd expect them to. And he says it's time that the United States change that approach. Maybe a lesson there is that the United States should do more of that as well, not get into fights for no good purpose, but be willing to put more pressure on these partners when they're behaving in ways we don't like. 
I think the United States simply has to have pretty candid conversations with countries like Saudi Arabia, who are constantly complaining that the United States isn't supporting them as well, that we're not reliable, we got out of Afghanistan, and what does that mean, etc. And I think the United States can point to a pretty long track record of backing these countries when necessary and say, look, if you want to continue to be able to count on this, you can't be perceived in the United States as an ungrateful partner. We've done at least as much for you, maybe more than you have done for us. And that's an act of diplomacy, but it's one we shouldn't be shying away from at this point. Martin Indyk agrees and suggests that the United States is at an inflection point with many of its Middle Eastern partners. With dependence comes expectations. And if they want to act independently in the region, as they've made clear they do when it comes to Iran, where they've said, we don't like the deal you're going to do, and you go ahead and do it, we're not going to oppose it. But then equally, we don't expect you to object if we go and take military action against Iran. You can't have both. You can't act independently, but then expect us to be always responsive to your needs. The tension is especially visible on the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The United States sought allies' solidarity pushing back against the Russian move, and it didn't get much help. They're all chucking and driving and saying, you know, trying to walk between the raindrops and not wanting to choose sides with us on a matter of vital importance to the United States, which we think should be of vital importance to them, because it's all about the way that the international system operates. But according to Indic, U.S. partners trying to walk between the raindrops might actually be a step in the right direction. For Israel to be taking its distance from us in this is, I think, a shocker, but it is a reflection. The Biden administration's reaction to this has been to give them slack and not to criticize them. In fact, to praise their efforts at mediation, which I think was a pretty transparent attempt to avoid taking sides. But that tolerance on the part of the Biden administration, I think, is driven by what I call a calculation of slack for slack, meaning we expect them, Israel, to give us slack on the Iranian nuclear deal. I do not oppose us if we go back into the JCPOA deal. And I think there's a kind of convenient arrangement here where we'll tolerate their calculation of their interests and they'll tolerate ours, which, if you think about it, is a more mature relationship. To Indic, mature relationships with partners will be more balanced than bilateral relationships have been in the past. In this new environment, the United States realizes that partners are going to act more independently, while the partners understand they don't have a blank check either. I think that is a true reflection of the price of retreat, that if we're not going to be so present and dominant in their region, we have to expect that they're going to look for other alternatives and calculate their interests in a different way, just as we are doing. I think that the fact that they are not lining up in the way that we have reason to expect is a manifestation of this change in the relationship that comes about from our retrenchment. It's a shocking thing, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a maturing of the relationship. As long as we can still work together on our common interests, it's fine. It's even better because we don't have the bandwidth to do what we used to do there. Dasa Kay thinks an even broader rethinking of U.S. relationships in the region is overdue. 
frankly, we don't have actual allies in this region. We have partnerships. We have partners where at times we have aligned interest, at times we don't. And she says that it's about time that the United States started examining just what those relationships do for the United States. I think we need to ask hard questions about what is the value of our Middle East partnerships today? What are we getting from them? If we're selling billions of arms to this region and we at the same time are hearing endless complaints, rightly so, frankly, that you know we are not there all the time for these countries' security, especially in the Arab Gulf. We're kind of in the worst of both worlds. We're not really getting credit from anyone. Our partners are disappointed that we're not doing enough. We continue to arm the region in ways that are very destabilizing. A lot of people are asking, what are these for? What are we getting out of these partnerships? Mike Duran says he has an answer. The question is, how are we going to square the circle between the necessity, the imperative, I would say, of remaining the dominant power in the Middle East and of not being able to do that through significant application of U.S. military force? And the answer is we have to do it through allies. And when you look at the number of allies in the Middle East who have four-star intelligence capabilities, four-star military capabilities, willingness to use those capabilities, the number is very small, really very small. And Israel is at the top of the list, I think. So I would argue that Israel is more important to the United States than ever before. We're not doing Israel a favor by helping it with the security. We're doing ourselves a favor. All of our discussions should start from a consideration of war in the Middle East. If war breaks out, what does it look like? Who are our allies? And the diplomacy should flow from that. The three major allies that we have in the region, the three most important allies are with regard to war, are Turkey, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. They are all crucial for the effort of containing Iran and deterring it. That's the golden triangle in my mind. He says that the United States' recent tensions with partners are largely of its own making. As the United States looks to the exits, he says partners have been left to fend for themselves. For the moment, their defense is so tied to us and our position is so unique that they don't have a ready option to leave us, but we are alienating them to an extent that is really shocking. When you rake your allies over the coals like that and you begin treating the Russians and the Iranians as valid interlocutors for the United States for stabilizing the Middle East, then you have to deal with the consequences. Your allies are going to behave at least, they're at least going to follow your example. If you're the Israelis and operations in Syria are vital to your interests and you, the United States, have made the Russians the dominant power in Syria, what choice do they have? But Walt thinks that when the U.S. creates more distance from its partners, tensions actually diminish. I think we have seen in the past few years that, in a sense, the relations among the various Gulf states and Iran sometimes improve when American support doesn't seem to be quite so automatic, quite so reflexive. So when the Trump administration didn't respond as vigorously to some of the things Iran was doing, the effect in the Gulf states was to suddenly say, "Okay, we need to lower the temperature with Iran. And they began talking again in ways they hadn't in a long time. So I think if you got a lowering of the temperature between the United States and Tehran so that we don't seem quite so reflexively willing to back them, you actually give our partners in the region an incentive to try and work things out to some degree with Iran as well. Where Walt sees opportunity, Duran sees a brewing disaster. 
Merely by engaging Iran in the way that we've been engaging it, we are building it up. If we go through with the nuclear deal, we're going to build it up even further. And at the same time, we are telling our allies that we will only help them defend their territory from Iranian attacks. We will not engage in any activities against Iran designed to deter it. So the effect of that is that we are emboldening Iran, and we see that all over the Middle East. It's obvious to me, and I think it should be obvious to every observer, that American policy today is emboldening the Iranians. We're not emboldening our allies. We're emboldening the Iranians to attack our allies. He says that leaving U.S. partners to Iran's ambitions in the region and ignoring their security concerns has left them with little chance but to look for help elsewhere. So we've made our allies defense orphans, and they're starting then to move, to gravitate toward the Chinese, where they're hoping that they can moderate the Iranians through Beijing. They can put pressure on us as well by showing that they're interested in moving to Beijing. Walt dismisses the idea that engaging with Iran drives partners toward China. In fact, he argues that the opposite is true. The most obvious way we could compete with China in the Middle East is to end the marginalization or the ostracism of Iran. The place where China has the greatest opportunities to make inroads in the Middle East is with Iran because we don't do business with them at all, really. But that doesn't mean he doesn't think China's growing engagement in the region poses a challenge for the United States. I think we are going to see the emergence of a more competitive diplomatic environment there, but it's not one where we lack resources to play that game if we're realistic about what we can expect. Countries in the Middle East are going to try and play China and the United States off against each other, and that's going to require some careful judgment on our part. But it doesn't require us to sort of do absolutely everything for countries in the Middle East that start flirting with China. But for Duran, the threat of China's growing engagement in the Middle East is a little more immediate and a little more existential. We're now in a very significant competition with the Chinese in the Middle East. And in my view, that's a competition with the Chinese, the Russians, and the Iranians. I believe that Chinese, Russians, and Iranians are in an alignment designed to undermine the American order in the world. Martin Indyk isn't so sure that China wants to replace the United States in the Middle East. I don't see them coming in to challenge us to try to be dominant in the Middle East. They're very wary about getting dragged into the Middle East vortex. They don't want to choose between Saudi Arabia and Iran, for example. They want to have good relations with both. And if you want to be a player in the region, using your power to influence developments in the region, you're going to have to decide which side you're on. You cannot be friends with countries that are at loggerheads. And I don't think they have any interest in picking a side and supporting it. But you can't be a superpower that dominates the region if you try to have zero problems, because you will generate if you have that aspiration. And Dasakei fears that a strategy to fight Chinese influence is self-defeating. I think this is only going to fuel more competition and can backfire. Right now, the Chinese are very active economically. They do a few things that we do need to keep our eye on and we should push back against. Basically, Chinese engagement has largely been economic. And if you look at their military engagement, it's been pretty limited. Of course, we're worried about it. But if we engage in this new Cold War mentality with China, we may just be encouraging them to expand that military engagement. So Currently, China is not a military threat. Let's not make it one. 
Duran says that threat is already there. They've made no secret about wanting to be the dominant military power in the world. And we need to focus on those particularly high-tech industries that they think are going to drive military innovation and drive economic innovation in the 21st century. And we need to make sure that our allies are not aiding the Chinese in developing in those areas. Also, we need to be very concerned about military facilities. They were building a military facility. We don't know the exact nature of which in the UAE. They have a base in Djibouti. He thinks that's a role the United States shouldn't give up so easily. I believe that the United States should want to remain the dominant power in the Middle East because of the importance of the Middle East. For no other reason, the importance of the Middle East in global energy markets. And if we cede that to the Chinese, which we are in danger of doing, the Chinese are going to exploit that position in order to become the dominant power, not just in the Middle East, but in all of Eurasia. The contest we're in with China is a contest for Eurasia. Walt thinks a U.S. effort to dominate the Middle East is misguided. The fundamental American interest is not in controlling the Middle East. The fundamental American interest is making sure that nobody controls the Middle East, that it's geopolitically divided, and that the energy that the global economy needs keeps flowing out to world markets. We kind of don't care where it goes as long as it's part of the larger reservoir of energy out there. And that means if China signs contracts and buys energy from these countries at market clearing prices, that's not a bad thing for the United States per say. And Dasa K says that, like it or not, the United States' chance to play that domineering role has passed. We're just not predominant anymore. We're important. We have to be present, but we're not the only player. And we're going to have to figure out when and how we work with other powers to bring about different outcomes. So we're going to have to be nimble. We need to think about regional security architecture that's nimble, where we work with other partners that has regional buy-in, where everybody sees a value in it. And she says that as U.S. policymakers embrace the new reality in the Middle East, they also need a new focus. We need to be, I think, a little clearer about where we stand. And a part of this gets to a broader challenge with U.S. policy in the region, which is we're all often focused on what we're against. We're against al-Qaeda. We're against ISIS. We're against Iran. In the old days, we were against the Soviets. Now we're against China. Everything's about trying to get the bad guys out of the region. What are we for? What's a positive vision for this region? And she says that one way the United States could advance that positive vision is by working with partners and adversaries alike to simmer down tensions in the region. Look, I don't think we should set our sights very high, but in the Middle East, even a low bar would be an improvement. We have no regional form for security cooperation now. We need a form where countries who are adversaries who don't get along can sit in the same room and talk through their problems, develop hotlines, try to at least prevent unintended conflict. You're not going to be able to prevent conflict that you know a leader or a state for various reasons is intent on. But you can at least prevent unintended conflict. You can increase transparency so that a nuclear accident in a facility doesn't look like some attempt to launch a nuclear attack or an earthquake that someone reads as as something more militarily intended. So you can also use it as a way to reduce conflict once it's started, because then you have channels of communication. Right now, we don't have channels of communication among adversaries in this region. That is not normal that is not healthy. We need to be thinking about inclusive regional security architecture in a much more serious way. Walt sees the benefits of that kind of arrangement too. 
I think just instinctively, I've never been powerfully attracted to those models, but I've over time come to have more respect for them, that in a number of contexts, things get worse when the parties aren't talking at all and having informal channels of communication, being able to deal on functional issues that aren't particularly political, you know, navigation, humanitarian assistance, emergency operations, things like that, sometimes even mundane questions like migration, refugees, etc. Having those kinds of conversations, I think, turns out to be pretty useful. And if that again starts to get embedded into discussions about what would be an appropriate regional security architecture, I think that's something we should certainly not be opposing. And to the extent that we can, we probably ought to back it. But like Dasake, he doesn't think we should set the bar too high. I think it's tricky in the sense that the United States is not now in a position to lead that process. If we were to announce that we wanted to do a big new Geneva comprehensive regional security discussion, I think our past behavior has made us a less credible convener than we might have been at earlier periods. But if local powers want to do that, we should encourage that kind of thing to happen. That's got to be reciprocated by the Iranians and the ability of all the parties here to throw monkey wrenches into this process at awkward moments is pretty world class. Some wonder just how long the United States is going to need to care about the Middle East. As Stephen Walt notes, The modern Middle East has been shaped probably as much as anything by its central role as an energy source since basically World War II. And if that role is coming to an end, let's say by 2050, 2060, it's hard for me to believe that doesn't have really dramatic effects on how the countries in the region will relate to one another and how other major powers outside the region will think about that part of the world. But that doesn't sit well with Mike Duran. You know what? If I'm around in 30 or 40 years and we have transitioned away from fossil fuels, I'd love to have that discussion. I probably will not be around. But any discussion of policy today that makes reference to the transition that's going to happen in 30 years is a bad basis for policy. The 9-11 attacks not only focused U.S. policymakers on the Middle East, but they persuaded many of them that the United States needed a bold and transformative plan to remake the region and remove threats to U.S. interests. Decades of war, the shifting tactics of non-state actors, and the durability of Middle Eastern authoritarianism have left that strategy with few advocates. But there's less agreement on what Middle East strategy should replace it. Some argue that the Middle East remains a linchpin of the global system, and the United States needs to maintain a robust presence there to keep adversaries in check. Others argue that the Middle East should be a secondary concern. To some, any sensible strategy in the region requires even closer ties to allies and partners, while some suggest that we've arrived at a point where more mature relationships mean that all countries should give each other leeway to pursue their national interests as they see fit. Where some see reduced U.S. presence contributing to regional accommodation, some see it promoting a free-for-all of bad behavior, unbridled competition, and hedging. Some sort of regional security framework may play a constructive role reducing tensions in the coming years, but ultimately, the most important factor may be an external one. The global energy transition is likely to transform the political economy of the Middle East over the next three decades, and it will transform the regional security environment as well. 
Two decades ago, George W. Bush declared the centrality of the Middle East to U.S. national security thinking. Two decades into the future, it's much harder to predict what the region will look like and what role it will play in U.S. thinking. And for those who remember how the United States first got embroiled in the Middle East, two or three decades is not that long a period of time. Thank you for joining us for this mini-series on U.S. power and influence in the Middle East. Liz Pulver produced the series, Caleb Harper did research and writing, and I'm your host, John Alterman. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, you can subscribe to Babbel on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts.